Well, good morning. It's great to see you. You know, it's really great to see you. Every Sunday, I'm glad to see you. But today, when it was especially hard to get here on time, I'm just really impressed that so many of you made it. Uh, I, I'm just proud of my church family. Um, if, if you are listening to the podcast because you aren't here right now and later on you're listening to it, I still love you. Jesus still loves you. But hey, you know, this is the cream of the crop right here, right? The people who showed up. Uh, It's great to see you and great to be in God's house together. We're continuing our series, What the World Needs Now, uh, and the book of Acts. So if you'll turn to Acts chapter 12, as you're turning there, let me just remind you, as we continue to read through the scriptures together, it's been a tough stretch for us in that. We've been through Leviticus. We're winding up Numbers. Actually, Numbers is getting to the interesting part now. But remember what I said at the beginning, if you were with us at the beginning of the year. Reading through the whole Bible is hard. There's a reason why there's whole stretches of the Bible you rarely hear preached on or taught in Sunday school and life group and other Bible study classes because they're just difficult passages to wade through. And yet, and yet, they are there for a reason. And that's why we chose the kind of Bible reading plan we have so that you're not reading just seven chapters of Leviticus one day. You're reading a little of the gospel and you're reading a little of the letters and a little of the, of the wisdom books too, so it helps break that up. But remember what I said, even the difficult parts of the Bible are necessary. They build background that is good for us later on, that, that helps us understand the biblical context. It also, it also helps us wrestle with some tough decisions, some tough questions about God. Why did God pour out fire from the altar and kill those two people who tried to offer uh, an offering in an improper way? What's up with that? Where is, what is God's wrath all about? When you wrestle with those difficult questions, wrestle with things that stir up doubts and difficult questions in your mind, it strengthens your faith. So stick with it and stick with those three other challenges. Pray for the lost, engage in missions, commit to generosity. It's going to bless you. It's certainly going to bless us. Now, uh, one more thing before we get into the Word. Some of you who pay close attention to this thing know that uh, my favorite basketball team tipped off about 24 minutes ago. Um, I, there is this wonderful creation called the DVR, and uh, I am headed straight home after this to watch. So if, if you're one of those kind people who wants to update me on the score, do not. Do not. If you're using your smartphone, I assume you're using it to read the Bible. Let's do that, all right? Speaking of basketball, I was listening uh, to a radio show this past week. It was talking about something I wasn't aware of. Apparently, in professional basketball right now, there is a, an epidemic of mental illness. And they're talking about specifically anxiety and depression. And you might be sitting there saying, oh, yes, these poor multimillionaires who get paid tons of money to play a kid's game. I feel so sorry for them. And yet, it is really true that some of the most finely conditioned athletes in the world, some of the best paid, most famous people in the world, are literally on the verge of losing their minds. Some of them have dropped out of the game entirely. Many of them can barely function. They need a, a ton of help. And it echoes uh, a shift or an epidemic of these two kinds of mental illness that is all across our country. In fact, I bet if we, if we were honest, there are, there are tons of people sitting in this very room that struggle with anxiety or depression or both. Now, in the case of the NBA players, one of the things they identified, they said in this radio show, they said, have you noticed if you go back and you watch old movies or old video of players from a generation ago, Michael Jordan and that, that generation of players. It would show them flying to games on airplanes or on buses. They'd be going from the hotel to the arena, and they always were talking. 
They were, they were talking about the game they just played or the game they were about to play. They were joking. They were playing cards. Sometimes they were even arguing or, or fighting. It got, things got tense on those buses and those plane rides. And yet they were interacting with each other. Now, when you see one of those players or those players get off their plane or off their bus, what are they doing? They all have the big earphones on, right? They're all listening to their own little playlist and they don't interact with one another. And they're staring at their screen. They're looking at social media. And what are, what are the reporters saying about me? What are fans saying about me? And, and they said, not saying that's all of it, but this isolation, this self-centeredness draw, drives anxiety and drives depression. And that's not a new thing. Headphones and smartphones are new. But this isolation is not. So let me read you a quote from a book by Chuck Swindoll called Dropping Your Guard. He writes, The Europeans who came to settle North America found it vast and and unexplored. Self-reliant was the watchword, and the scout, the mountain man, or the pioneer, with his axe or rifle over his shoulder, became the national hero. In those early days, the government used to give away quarter sections of land to anyone who would homestead in order to encourage settlement. People flocked west from the crowded cities and villages to have their own land at last. Before they could farm the land they had chosen, their first job was to build a sod hut to live in. And most families built them right smack dab in the center of their quarter section. The reason was obvious. People who had never owned land before had a new sense of pride and ownership. They wanted to feel that everything their eye could see belonged to them. But that custom changed quickly. This chosen isolation did strange things to people. Occasionally, photographers went out to record life on the frontier and returned with photographs of weird men, wild-eyed women, and haunted-looking children. Before long, most of these families learned to move their houses to one corner of their property line so they could live in proximity with three three other families who also lived on the corners of their properties. Four families living together, sharing life and death, joy and sorrow, abundance and want, had a good chance of making it. You just saw the video that James made, and, and he's right. When Jesus was here, he didn't build a building for people to gather in. He didn't write a book. I know the, God, the Word of God, the, the Holy Scriptures, they are inspired by God's Holy Spirit. But these, these words weren't written down until Jesus had been gone 10, 15, 20 years. So it wasn't about writing a book. It wasn't about building a building. It wasn't about gathering a large gathering. He would, he would have large crowds sometimes, but sometimes he would say difficult things and the crowds would leave. What did Jesus do for the three years of his ministry? What did he do more than anything else, more than teaching, more than miracle working? He invested in a small group of men and women. He spent an inordinate amount of time with them. Often the scriptures say he took them apart from the crowds, took them away. In fact, the Sermon on the Mount says when Jesus saw the crowds, he took his disciples up and he sat down and they stood around him and listened. Jesus was all about that small group. And he wasn't just preparing the future leaders of his movement. He was actually saying, this is how transformation happens. Not in a big group, not in a huge event, in relationships one-to-one, small, intimate, completely honest. Community. After he was gone, The church didn't own any buildings. We've seen this in Acts. They didn't have a church building to meet in. Occasionally, they would meet in big groups, but mostly it was house to house. It was however many people you could fit into Peter's house or or John Mark's house or, or someone else's home. That's where the growth happened. That's where the church was the church. 
And then later on, after they began writing the letters of the New Testament, when you read those, you see over and over again, they say things like, be of one mind, love one another, bear each other's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. They used over and over again a term that in Greek is pronounced koinonia, and we usually translate that as fellowship. The problem with the term fellowship is it's a great term, but we as Baptists have misused it. We've used it to mean kind of a churchy word for party. And so we'll say things, especially if you're an old-time Baptist like me, you'll say things like, well, after that concert, we're going to have a fellowship with pie and ice cream. Or, you know, let's have a big church dinner and let's have it in the fellowship hall. And I love those kinds of events, don't get me wrong, but that's not what the Bible talks about when it refers to koinonia. So for my purposes, for our purposes, I'm not going to use the word fellowship in this message. I'm going to use the word community. Community. That's this, this idea that We need a small group of people that we're accountable to, that we know we can count on, that if I'm in the hospital, they're going to show up, that if I'm struggling, they're going to lift me up, that I can pour into, that's what is needed. And here's the sermon in two sentences. You ready? In case you're planning to go to sleep later. Here's the sermon in two sentences. That was a joke, although I know some of you are. So two sentences. Number one, the, the church can't accomplish its mission unless it's a place of true community. And you and I can never be all God intends for us to be unless we're experiencing real community. And the reason I stress that second part is because of this. Because within American Christianity today, there's a growing idea that I don't need the church, that the church is optional. The church is something, well, if I go, that's nice. I feel like I'm doing my good deed, but it's not something that really I need. And so you have a lot of Christians, a lot of people who will tell you, they can tell you when they came to know the Lord, they can tell you about their baptism, they can give you a great testimony, they can tell you about their presence walk with Christ, and yet they have no ongoing affiliation with the church. And you also have millions more American Christians who will go to church most Sundays, but the farthest they get, the most most involved they get is what happens in this room. They come, they hear a sermon, they sing some songs, they see the show, and then they leave. And if they don't like the show, they find a better show across town. And these are good people in both categories, don't get me wrong. But when you don't have that time in in a body of believers, that that serious, serious community, you're just like those pioneers in early times. You start to get a little weird. You start to get a little strange. You start to drift from who God created you to be because you're missing something key in your spiritual walk, just as important as if you stopped reading the Bible, just as important as if you stopped praying, just as important as if you stopped believing some of the great doctrines of the faith. You need that community. And we're going to read a story today that I am convinced was one of the favorite stories of the early church. I think they told and retold this story around campfires and at dinners and just in casual gatherings for generations to come. And I'm sure they laughed every time because it's a great story, but it also shows us the power of community. So let's look at chapter 12, verse 5. The background here is the leader or the, the, the Roman-sponsored, endorsed leader of that region was a man named Herod Agrippa. And yes, he was the grandson of Herod the Great, the man who tried to kill Jesus when he was an infant. Herod Agrippa was an extremely vain and insecure man, like probably most dictatorial leaders are. He wanted desperately for the Jewish people to love him, they didn't, number one, because of, his, because of his ethnicity. He was Idumean instead of Jewish, but more importantly, because 
he collaborated with the Romans. He got his power from their occupiers. But he wanted so desperately for them to like him. And so the the Jewish historian Josephus would write that during high holy days, uh, Herod Agrippa would stand and read from the Torah and would weep big crocodile tears to try to convince the people, look how devout I am. It didn't work. But then he found something that did work. He arrested James, the son of Zebedee, brother of John, one of the three main disciples along with his brother John and Peter. He arrested uh, James and had him beheaded James became the first of the apostles to die for the faith. And Herod Agrippa's approval ratings shot through the roof. And so he said, oh, you like that? Well, I'll do you one better. And he had Peter arrested. Now, this is during the Passover week. This is during the festival before Passover. This is is during the time when when the, the city was clogged with pilgrims. And so things were just lining up exactly right for Herod Agrippa. He said, with all these people in the city that aren't usually here, I'm going to have Peter uh, executed tomorrow morning. All these people will witness it. They'll go home to their various corners of the empire and spread the news about what a great, benevolent dictator I am. And so Peter was to be executed in the morning. We pick up the story right there in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. So uh, just so you get the scene, Peter is chained to two soldiers. There are two soldiers standing guard right outside his cell. If Peter suddenly transforms into some combination of Houdini and uh, Jackie Chan or whatever and is able to get out of the bonds and worm his way out of the cell and overpower four guards, he's still in the middle of a Roman garrison, surrounded by soldiers of the greatest army on earth behind a locked gate. Peter is going to die tomorrow. There is nothing in this world, in this world, that can stop it. But there's something else outside this world, as we know. Verse 7, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick, get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter said, did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Now, I love Luke. Luke is a great storyteller. He includes some great details here. So you want to know the, how, how miraculous the story is? Yes, the church prayed for Peter to be delivered, and God sent an angel. Yes, the chains fell off his wrists. Great things. I mean, the, the, the uh, guards were either stupefied or asleep. All of that's a miracle. You know what's also a miracle? It's the night before Peter's going to be put to death violently, and he's asleep. How many of you think you would be asleep? Anybody? Anybody think you would sleep well? I'm going to say something that I think I can safely say. I bet there's a bunch of people here who didn't sleep well last night thinking, I hope I get up on time. Peter is about to be executed in the morning. Let me ask you something. Is there anything in Peter's history that makes us think that he's exceptionally brave? No. This is the guy who denied Jesus three times the night he died. And yet Peter is about to be executed in the morning and he's sleeping like a baby. So sleeping so well that the angel has to not only come into his cell with that brilliant light that we read described in the Christmas story, not only has to say, wake up, he has to slap him on the side. 
Then when Peter opens his eyes, he has to talk to him like a little child. You know how you wake a little child up and you're like, okay, buddy, get your clothes on. Come on, it's cold out there. Better put your coat on. That's literally what the angel has to do with Peter. Because the church is praying for Peter, he has a supernatural peace. He has peace when he's got no business feeling peace. He's asleep when he should be up fretting away. That's because the church is praying. We go on in verse 9. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Now, let me ask you something. You are wanted, right? You've just been sprung from jail. It's the middle of the night. You're in the middle of Jerusalem. You know that any minute, maybe even already, guards are going to be combing the city for you. What do you do? I think most of us hightail it out of there. We get as far from Jerusalem as possible before the daylight dawns. Or maybe if you know some secret hiding place, you go and, and kind of cower there until, until the search is over. That's not what Peter does. I want you to see what he does instead. Verse 12, when this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. John Mark, by the way, is the writer of the second gospel in the New Testament. Uh, most scholars agree with the early church tradition that says that John Mark got the stories about Jesus from the testimony of Peter himself. Why does Peter go in the middle of the night when he's just been sprung from jail, when everybody's looking for him, why does he go to the house of John Mark? Because he knows that's where the church will be. Because he knows they're going to be praying for him. How does he know that? Did they text him when he was in prison and say, hey, buddy, if you happen to get out, here's where we are? No. He knows because that's my family. I'm in jail. I'm going to be executed. Of course they're going to be praying for me. I know it's 3 a.m. They're going to be up. That's how they are. That's what we do. If John Mark was in jail, I'd be there. If, if Mary was, was in the hospital, if she was dying, I'd be there praying for her. That's what we do. We're community. So here's the part that I guarantee you from this point on, the people love this part because I bet they thought this was hilarious. Now, you know, jokes don't translate, humor doesn't translate, but picture yourself in this situation. Verse 13, Peter knocked at the outer entrance and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter's at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Now quickly, I, I just have to say this. Why does Luke include the name of this little servant girl, Rhoda? We don't know anything else about her. Why does he include her name here? We don't know. You want to hear my theory? Okay, whether you want to hear it or not, I'm the preacher, you're not, you're going to have to hear it. So my theory is that Luke loved this story, thought this story was hilarious, and he wanted to guarantee that for the rest of this poor woman's life, every time someone came up to her and met her for the first time, they'd say, Rhoda, you're the one who didn't let Peter in, right? You're the one who heard his voice and was so excited you forgot to open the door. And she said, yes, that's me. And they both laughed 
until they cried. I, I, that's just, I, you can't fool me. You can't convince me that's not why Luke included it in there. So, verse 18, or verse 17. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet. By the way, I don't know if this was the universal symbol of shut up, but that's what I'm guessing. Uh, and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said. And then he left for another place. So let me tell you two things I see in this story that show us why you need community, why I need community, why this is a non-negotiable thing for us. Number one, we need someone to help us carry the load. We need someone to help us carry the load. The church's first instinct when Peter was arrested was to pray. Not just to say, hey, did you hear Peter's in jail? Okay, well, I'm going to go pray with my family and then we're going to go to bed like we do. No, they wanted to get together. They came together as one because they knew there's power when God's people get together and they needed the support and encouragement of each other. They were desperately sad. Their first instinct was to come together and pray. Peter's first instinct when he was released was not to get to safety as quickly as possible. It was to go and tell them he had been released because they're his family. He wanted them to know their prayers had been answered. Here at our church, we have groups that we call life groups. And I know some of you, if you've grown up uh, in, in Baptist life or other evangelical churches, you call it Sunday school. Let me just say for the record, it doesn't hurt my feelings what you call it. The name is not important. The reason we call them life groups as a staff is just as a reminder to us and to you that what we do at 945 on Sunday mornings is not just a Bible study. It's intended to be community. It's intended to be more than just sit and listen to someone lecture or talk about this passage of Scripture. As important as that is, you also need a group of people who you know, if I'm sick, if I'm in the hospital, they're going to be there. They're going to show up. They're going to help me. They're going to support me. They're going to be mowing my yard for me since I can't be there. They're going to be taking care of my kids or taking care of my pets. They're gonna, if, I, if I lose my job, they're going to raise money so they can help me pay my bills till I get back on my feet. If I'm married and my spouse and I are having problems, they'll know it because they can see it in us. We can't fool them because we know each other that well. And they'll pray for us. And, and the women will get with my wife and, and the men will come alongside me and kick me in the rear end. And, and we'll, they'll help us work things out. And if we don't work things out, guess what? They're still going to love us. They're going to love us nonetheless. And, and we'll still have that community. We can't, we can't lose that because that's what it's about. And when I start to drift and I haven't shown up in church in a month and I'm making excuses like, well, you know, it's my kid's baseball or, well, you know, it's really busy, they're not going to accept those kinds of excuses. They're going to come track me down and ask me what's going on. And, and when they see me start to uh, drift into bad habits, maybe addictions or other bad habits, maybe they see that I'm starting to lose my temper a lot and I'm starting to alienate my kids, they're going to come and there's some men in my group who are going to come and just slap me around until I get right. And, and when I have things I need to unburden myself of, I know I can sit down with one or two of those men. And my wife can sit down with one or two of those women and can say, I need to tell you the deepest, darkest, ugliest thing about me because I need help. And they're not going to judge me. And they're not going to tell anybody else what I said. And they're just going to pray for me and love me and help me overcome that by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need that. That's more than a Sunday school class. 
That's community, and that's what we all need, and many of you don't have that. And you need it. Let me quote you something from John Ortberg. There was an Alameda County study that tracked the lives of 7,000 people over nine years. Researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than people with strong relational connections. They found, moreover, that people who had bad health habits like smoking, poor eating, no exercise, alcohol use, and so on, people with bad health habits but strong social ties lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits, went out jogging, ate the right foods, but were isolated. In other words, it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. And that's not all. There was another study published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. They infected 276 volunteers with the virus that produces the common cold. This study found that people with strong emotional connections did four times better fighting off illness than those who were isolated. People who were connected were less susceptible to colds. They shed less virus, and they produced significantly less mucus than relationally isolated subjects. I am not making this up. They produce less mucus, so it's literally true. Unfriendly people are snottier than friendly people. (laughs) That is all literally true. And so it's literally true that community can save your life. Community can make all the difference for you, not just your family, And this is something, just as a word of testimony of my own, when I hit 40, the midlife crisis is real. No, I did not grow a ponytail or buy a Corvette or, thank the Lord, flirt with girls half my age or anybody else. But you go through this period where you're in a funk, where you think you're worthless, and I realized I hadn't done the hard work of making strong male friendships. My wife is my best friend. That's the way it should be. But she can't carry that load herself. I can't, I can't carry the load she requires. We need those friendships. We need that community. Are you working on that? Are you investing in that? Number two, second reason, because we need to learn how to love. It's not just because of what we receive. It's because of what we give. Those members of that early church, they weren't praying in that house because they didn't know what they'd do if Peter died. There were Ten more good apostles where he came from. And they'd already discovered they didn't need an apostle to lead them. They had the Holy Spirit of God. No, they were in that room praying because a brother they loved was in trouble. That group of people had learned how to love. Remember the testimonies we read about the early church and how rich people in the church would sell stuff they owned just to provide money for people who didn't have enough. How no one lacked anything. There were literally no poor people in the church. They came in poor. They didn't stay poor because they provided for one another's needs. They learned how to love. Guess what, folks? You may not know this, but salvation is not just a one-time decision. We preach in, in evangelical Christianity, we preach all the time about give your heart to Jesus, give your life to the Lord. Absolutely. If at the end of this service, if you don't know Jesus and you come forward and you talk to Alan or me and you say, I'm ready to give my life to him and you pray a prayer with us and we schedule your baptism, the the moment you pray that prayer, 
I believe by faith in the Scriptures. I believe you are His and you always will be. Yes, that's salvation, but it's not all salvation is. That's just the beginning. Salvation is a process in which Jesus takes you from where you are to where He is. Point of salvation, friends, is not to get to heaven. Heaven is just the culmination of the process. The point of salvation is to become just like Him. And how do you become like Him? It's not just a matter of going to church. It's not just a matter of of not saying certain words you used to say or not doing certain things you used to do. All those are good. But becoming like Jesus means learning to love like He loved. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. And you cannot learn to love other people by reading a book. You can't learn to love other people by sitting in a class or singing a song. You have to actually live alongside a person. That's the only way it happens. That's the only way it works. Milton Rokich, psychologist, wrote a book years ago called The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. Ypsilanti is a city in Michigan. He was a a mental health worker there. He worked in a hospital, mental hospital. Um, He had three patients in that hospital. All three shared the same delusion. All three thought that they were literally the Son of God. Every single one of those three. Yes, I have been sent by God. And he worked with them. He, did, he tried everything he'd been taught in all of his classes and all of his research. Nothing worked. Nothing broke through their delusions. Until one thing, one thing finally made a breakthrough. He got the three together. And it didn't happen overnight. It took a while. And it, it, it took some really difficult conversations. For instance, there was one point where one of them said, I remember the day God told me to come to the world and save mankind. And the second one said, I told you no such thing. I think that got a little heated. And yet through the course of those conversations... Each of the three men recognized the delusion they were under and worked their way toward healing. My point is, we're all suffering from the same delusion. Although we don't say it out loud, deep down inside, we think we're God. That's what sin is. It's saying, I know more than He does. My desires are more important than what He says. My goals and my dreams are what it really takes to be happy, not the stuff that He says in the gospel. I must have this at any cost, even if it hurts this person, even if it lets down this group, even if it disgraces the God who created me, I must have this. Salvation is when we say there is a God and He's not me. But that process of salvation, of learning to love, is every day just a little bit more we're learning. You know, I don't have to say yes to all my desires. You know, I don't really have to gain all the things I've always dreamed of if putting someone else first is what I was created to do. You're learning to love. And you can't do that in isolation. You have to have community. And you might say, okay, Jeff, I get it, but I don't have time for that. You don't know how hectic my schedule is. And I I say to you, I understand. I watch you. I see how busy you are. But I also tell you, you make time for what is important to you. This morning before the early service, a couple of guys were talking about music, and they looked at me and they said, are you a musician? And I said, no, I, I played trumpet when I was in junior high, but then when I realized you have to practice, I quit. And, and it's true. When you see us non-musicians have this, have this uh, cop-out, when we see people like Nathan and Catherine and Matthew and the, and the rest of the worship band members, and we see them playing and we think, man, it'd be nice to be that talented. 
as if Catherine gets up one morning and just picks up a guitar and naturally is able to play. That's not the way it works. What you see up here is the result of hours and hours and hours and hours of practice. They make time to do that because music is important to them. You could do the same thing. Now, not all of us are called to be musicians, but all of us are called to be like Jesus. If you want to be like Jesus, you'll make time for it. And if you want to be like Jesus, you're going to make time for community. It's as simple as that. If you tell me I don't have time to be part of a life group, I don't have time uh, to invest in other people, what you're telling me is I don't really want to be like Jesus. Can I just have a little bit? And it doesn't work that way. Now, I know other people would say, well, listen, Jeff, I tried it once and I didn't like it. I tried one of those life groups and, you know, nobody talked to me or the teacher was boring or I just felt awkward. So I, it's just not for me. Well, you know what? I've had some meals that were really terrible. I didn't quit eating. I've read some books that truly stunk. I didn't stop reading. It's worth the effort. And if you're part of a life group right now that's not meeting your needs, I've got two options for you. Number one, try another one. Or number two, see if maybe you're the problem. Could you be doing more to bring about real community in that place? Could you be more open and honest? It's worth the effort. In fact, I'll go further. If you're not experiencing true biblical community, then you're not becoming the person God intends for you to be. And that hurts us as a church. So if you won't do this for yourself, do it for us. Do it for the work of God in downtown Conroe because it's that important. Let me just leave you with this. The good news is we serve a God who believes in community so strongly. You know why? Because He's experienced it forever. Think about this for a moment. God, at a certain point in history, He created the world. He created humanity. You know why He created humanity? It wasn't because He was lonely. The Bible is very clear. God does not need us to survive. You know why? Because He has enjoyed communion within the Godhead forever. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other in a, in a way that is so full of joy, so full of fulfillment, that he needs, he needs nothing else in the world. And yes, I am talking about the Trinity. And no, I cannot explain it to you. But here's the best explanation I've ever read, courtesy of, of a guy named Tim Keller, who I quote a lot. He says, when you think about the Trinity, what the Bible says about the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Father loves the Son. The Son adores the Father. The Holy Spirit builds up and, and, and promotes both Father and Son, and there's this constant process of one deferring to the other and one glorifying the other, back and forth, and in and out it goes. And Keller says it's, it's the divine dance. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, just dwelling in love with one another. And God created the world. He created us so there would be more people to invite to that dance. And it's so important to Him. Community is so important to Him. He came, Jesus came, died on a cross to make it possible that we could enter into that dance with Him. Yes, here I am, a Baptist preacher saying, come to the dance. And I mean it. Are you enjoying that? By the way, side note, if that wasn't true, if God wasn't Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, He wouldn't be a God of love. If God could exist for all of eternity with no community with anybody else and be perfectly content, He wouldn't be a God of love. He'd be something else, something I wouldn't want to worship. But because there is community within the Godhead, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are completely 
fulfilled in their relationship with one another. We know He is a God of love who is inviting us to join in what He has enjoyed forever. He talks about it in John 17. Father, make them one as as you and I are one. Glorify me with the glory we had together since before time began. He's inviting us into that, that community. And when we dwell in that community with each other, it's an advertisement to the world. This is what our God is like. What do you think advertises better? A bunch of stuffy people who are really good at following rules? Or a bunch of people who are obviously broken, but constantly growing toward perfection and loving each other in spite of our differences. I'd say B is better. Don't you want to be a part of that?